Clients want to have it both ways. They want to know that you've got the category expertise, but they also want to ensure that you're not working uh, for anybody who might be a competitive threat to them or a, a competitor in some undefined or vaguely defined way. Hi, I'm Darren Woolley, founder and CEO of Trinity P3 Marketing Management Consultancy, and welcome to Managing Marketing, a weekly podcast where we discuss the issues and opportunities facing marketing, media, and advertising with industry thought leaders and practitioners. There appears to be a huge discrepancy in the way companies work with their consulting partners and how they work with their advertising agencies. On one hand, consultants are often chosen and valued for their category experience, and in fact, working with two or more companies in the same category makes them an expert. But for advertising agencies, while advertisers will value category experience, they will not tolerate an agency having another client in the same category. Why is this so, and what can be done about it? To tackle this conflicting topic, please welcome to Managing Marketing, the founding partner and board chair of Tadium, and the co-founder of award-winning agency, Ben Simon Byrne, Jack Ben Simon. Welcome, Jack. Good morning, Darren. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. It is a conundrum, isn't it? This whole idea of conflicting clients. You know, we, we come across it as pitch consultants all the time when uh, you know, clients will say, well, we're, we're interested, we want the best agencies, but not if they have anyone in this category. It sort of limits their it, choices, doesn't it? it you know, I, I'm old enough to have uh, learned how this industry works over the last 37 years and young enough to still want to try to change it. And it's, it's a, it is a conundrum because clients want to have it both ways. Uh, you know, they, they want to know that you've got the category expertise, uh, but they also want to ensure that you're not working uh, for anybody who might be a competitive threat to them or a, a competitor in some undefined or vaguely defined way. And uh, it's been going on for forever. I mean, it, it dates back, I think, to the time when advertising agencies had uh, kind of a one-to-one relationship with CEOs. Uh, in the earliest days of our industry, it, it made a lot of sense. If, if you were working for Coke, uh, helping them build their brand, you obviously weren't going to work for Pepsi. Those kind of direct competition, uh, what I would call sort of zero-sum conflicts, where you're trying to execute a single transaction to a single customer, and the choices are really clear. Uh, obviously, you can't have uh, divided loyalties. You can't be sharing confidential information. You can't be working across purposes. Those things are, are self-evident. Uh, but the notion of conflict, I think, has evolved over the many decades since it became established into something that is far more uh, pernicious in uh, in our industry because it it's taken on a life of its own and in many ways it's been a real uh, a reason why industry why the industry has struggles with growth uh you know it's it stifles growth for companies that can't uh, expand because clients won't allow them to expand and I, I think that's one of the reasons why it's a it's an issue that i would love to to help grapple with well yeah and one of the things that's made it incredibly difficult is the way clients themselves are often in organizations now that are not simply classified into a very narrow category you know um, technology companies for instance will often find themselves operating across multiple categories and this makes an incredibly difficult situation and the other one that we run into all the time is financial services i mean it used to be banks but now it's banks and pension funds and insurance companies and home insurance and healthy, yeah, and it goes on and on and on, and they're all conflicts. 
I, I have experience with a uh, large grocery chain that got into banking and presented conflicts for a bank client we had simultaneously. So it's not even just within financial services. That yeah, the the, the diversification of of uh, corporate interests is a real problem because it creates what you might call indirect conflicts. It's really easy to understand why you can't serve both Coke and Pepsi at the same time. But it's now, I think, a common principle that if a company is earning revenue uh, on a brand that um, competes with another company's ability to earn revenue on a different brand, it's almost as though the conflict exists at the corporate level. And that's, I think, what creates a lot of uh, consternation in our industry is the, you know, it's almost a semantic issue. Like if you get to the heart of it, um, people use the shorthand conflict, and that's actually inaccurate. The, the, the phrase is conflict of interest. And I think a lot of people on both the client side and the agency side have grown up without really being taught what a conflict of interest is. In other words, there are interests that put an individual into a decision-making process that is hard to resolve because they have competing interests that are fighting for, um, for resolution. And those kind of conflicts of interest are not generally taken into account when a client determines that something is a conflict. And so that shorthand of, is it a conflict, seeds the decision to a client's prerogative, rather than educating both sides of the relationship around what a conflict of interest might be, and allowing them to discuss whether there actually are competing interests here, or just competing ownership. Now, it's a really good point, Jack, and and I'm glad you raised it because one of the things that we have seen is some more enlightened clients saying, look, we really want to narrow what we see as conflict to a point that you raised even earlier, which is direct competitors, where they feel like they are operating similar size, zero-sum game in that they have very similar audiences. But it's been interesting because, uh, and again, in financial services, this particular client was open to agencies taking on many of these fintech startups. And I know it's a high risk for revenue for agencies, but it's also big opportunities creatively to do work for the, the fintech startups. I probed a little bit as to why, and they said, basically, we're adding our agency into our sort of M&A search and selection process, because if they get one that um, is particularly uh, successful, we'll be able to identify that very quickly through our agency as an acquisition target. It was a, <laughs> quite an interesting strategy. It is. And you've, you've highlighted a lot of nuanced strategies uh, over the years. The one that I found most interesting, and I actually had never encountered this until you highlighted it in one of the uh, things I read that you've published, is the idea that certain clients will hire multiple agencies in order to create conflicts for their competitors, uh, particularly if they're trying to get a really good agency uh, on their, you know, out of out of the grasp of a competitor. I hadn't realized that there was quite that much uh, sort of, you know, forethought given to the creation of conflicts uh, until I sort of saw you highlight it. I'm more on the receiving end of an RFP comes in. We're asked if we have any conflicts. We maybe go to a client and ask them if they'd be okay if we pitch that particular piece of business. And then we hear that, you know, in fact, they would deem it a conflict and they'd rather we wouldn't. That's the, the side of it that I see. Um, but yes, I, I can see that, you know, what you highlighted in terms of the fintech experience in, in financial services is really highlighting what the benefits of allowing agencies to work uh, in areas of specialization uh, could be for clients. And, you know, I think clients who are more tolerant of conflict experience those kind of benefits. It might be identifying a, 
a potential acquisition. It might be uncovering people who've got really unique knowledge, which is what you see where you've got agencies that specialize in certain verticals, um, where conflicts are, are, you know, like in management consultancies, not just uh, deemed to be unacceptable, but actually encouraged because they build knowledge. I, I think all of those things need to be highlighted for clients a little bit more because they are of value. Um, but too often, uh, it, it just comes down to, oh, that company, you know, makes money in a category that we're in, therefore, you can't work with them. And it's very arbitrary. Yeah. Well, look, they also said that, uh, you know, as a startup, it's highly unlikely they're going to be a direct threat for a long period of time. You know, in fact, that most of these fintechs that operate in a very narrow focus, they'll find a weakness in the current offering that technology mm-hmm. can help. And and I just thought it was a very a very sort of enlightened view of what conflict of interest to your point you know it's actually in the client's interest in that case to use their agency almost as a agent to go out and see what else is in the marketplace yeah, those, those up, benefits that work yeah those, those benefits accrue to clients that are enlightened i you know I, it reminds me we we had a we had a lot of financial services clients over the years but we had a, a very large bank uh, that was not in the business of um, wholesaling any uh, assets. They were providing more advisory services and so on. And then we had an asset manager that was a pioneer in the in the world of exchange traded funds. And they were not complex because one was was out there selling ETFs and the other one was uh, selling everything under the sun, but retailing it rather than wholesaling it. So there was never any conflict for a good decade. And we built the ETF brand by attacking mutual funds, right? Explaining to people that active management was not as successful as people might have thought. Most active managers don't outperform the indices. And so that's how we built the ETF business. And that worked fine until the bank went out and bought a mutual fund. And all of a sudden now, it's a conflict that was created through the bank's expansion. But because the prior relationship already existed, the bank wasn't really in a position to say, you have to resign a client you've been working with. Let's try to manage this. We went to the the asset manager and said, how do you feel about us, you know, managing mutual fund brands while at the same time, you know, doing your work, explaining that mutual funds are not the best way to invest. And they took the view. And I think, you know, I think you've written about this as well. Their view was we already have the A team. Why would we want to work with the B team? Right. We've got we've got people who are building our brand successfully. Why should we go and find a new agency just because so they, they were they were tolerant of the conflict as well. But what it highlighted for me, stepping back a little bit, was how often conflict gets gets defined by category rather than brand. In other words, if they're in the category, I mean, th- this ETF brand was going to take business from all mutual funds. It wasn't Coke versus Pepsi, and this, you know, uh, this this mutual fund was going to potentially uh, capture assets from all ETFs and, and all other mutual funds. So the, the the issue of conflict of interest and where it might reside really comes to the fore in those kind of situations because defining it by category makes it easier for clients to deem things conflicts. You know, we had, we had a client, for example, um, in, the, in the beer business and uh, along came a client in the wine business. And the, the beer business was feeling that wine was on an upsurge and beer was maybe not as popular amongst uh, younger drinkers as it might have once been. And so, you know, tastes were being, were, were evolving, consumer behavior was evolving. And so when we had an opportunity uh, to, to pitch a particular, you know, to pitch a beer brand, they said, well, you can't be in the wine business and the beer business. Yeah. And that's a definition of conflict that is extraordinarily broad because there's no one beer brand that is going to take business from one wine brand. 
There are 10,000 wine brands and there are a thousand beer brands. But the idea that you can't work in both both categories is a definition of conflict, which really does stifle growth and isn't based on any realistic premise of where there might be a conflict of interest that could cost a particular company some kind of money or, or material benefit. Trinity P3. You raise an interesting point there because I find a lot of marketers will often have a view which is quite binary. They think it's either a win or lose. But very few think about the fact that if you're a relatively small player, you know, and we keep using Coke and Pepsi, probably because, you know, their combined market share in most markets is up in the 80% or better, right? So, yeah, and they're fighting it out for that majority shareholding. But for a lot of brands in really quite complex and and complicated uh, categories, they might be sitting there on 5% or 7%. And that really it's not about someone succeeding at their loss, but the possibility of working with an agency that gets both of you to grow and even to grow do a category job, which you shouldn't do if you're a small player because the category job always favours the biggest player. We, we often talk in, uh, in our you know, strategic planning process about brand leaders and, and how many mature categories have multiple brand leaders. I mean, you take credit cards, you've got Visa, American Express, and MasterCard. Is any of them a weak sister? No, they're all incredibly successful brands that have carved out distinct franchises. So yeah, category definitions of conflict are problematic. I'll give you one crazy example, probably the craziest conflict definition I'd ever seen in my career. We had um, taken on, uh, through some changes in our company and acquisition and so on, uh, a relationship with an amusement park. And the at the same time, we had a relationship with a professional sports team, major league sports team. Please and, don't tell me they saw a conflict. Yes. Well, I'm going to explain to you how they saw the conflict. <laughs> Their definition of conflict, and this was despite the fact that they had actually done cross-promotion with the sports team, had the athletes come up to the amusement park to sign autographs, had coexisted in another agency previously. None of that mattered. They came to us and they said, if somebody is at the ballpark, they cannot be at the amusement park. And so it was a definition of conflict based on how the consumer spent her time. And if she could spend her time in a different way, then that, those brands, and I, and I, you know, I countered by saying, of course, they could go shopping as well. So does that mean we can't work with any retailers? It, it really highlighted for me how arbitrary conflict definition yeah. can be. And it, it, was, it was really just an effort to exert a certain amount of control over the agency. Uh, and, and ironically, the, you know, the, the amusement park was about five times the size of the revenue that we were earning on the, on the, um, on the sports team. Uh, and we, we chose to resign the amusement park. Because we felt a, a client that was being that capricious was really not going to be a good partner for us in the long term. But that happens, right? That happens. And when, when, when conflict is in the eye of the beholder and there are no norms or, or legal definitions or standards, you end up with some of these unbelievable situations where individuals just decide, hey, today this is a conflict. Jack, you raised the, you know, the fact that it can be seen as a sign of control. I often think, and, and you mentioned earlier that it's just easy to use a category conflict as a way of, of limiting who an agency works with. But I also think it goes a little bit to insecurity on behalf of the marketer that they feel threatened by you working with any sort of vaguely uh, conflicting, in quotes, uh, account. Has that been your experience? Yes. Um, 
And, and the reason for that is that legitimate conflicts of interest, you know, we always call, like you said, Coke and Pepsi, they actually rarely come up mm-hmm. because Coke's agency would never be asked to pitch Pepsi, right? Pepsi wouldn't mm-hmm. invite them. And they wouldn't go to Coke and say, are you okay if we work with Pepsi? <laughs> it just The legitimate conflicts of interest are so self-evident, they never come up. Mm-hmm. So by definition, when you have to clear a conflict with a client, you're probing around what's the client's comfort level, right? And that comfort level, I would not describe it as, as irrational. Uh, I would actually describe it as insecure, right? Because very often, those insecurities manifest themselves not because... I'm worried I'm going to lose business, right? My, my brand is going to suffer because you're going to be promoting a, a brand that I deem, you know, indirectly competitive. It comes because they have to defend the decision to allow you to do it, oh. right? And that's where the insecurities manifest themselves because you're, you're, you're generally not asking the CEO if it's okay for you to work with that, that brand. You're asking somebody who works in a marketing leadership position and they don't want to be questioned by the CEO as to why uh, their agency is now working with that brand. And so it's a defensive mechanism and it based on a, on a relative level of insecurity in their own uh, organization that it's easier to say, no, just we'd rather you not do that. Yeah. I had a, uh, a, a unique experience because I had a client come wanting, looking for a new agency and they actually picked the agency that was on the roster of their main competitor. They didn't know that. They just loved the work that they did. And they said, could you talk to them about whether they'd be open to pitch for our business? And, and the agency rightly said, well, you know, um, we have a conflict because... Our... And I said, have you spoken to your client as to whether they'd be happy for you to work on both pieces of business? And they were, well, we hadn't considered that. They went off and asked and, and the client said, with some guide rails around it, that yes, they were happy. So we went back thinking we'd achieved, you know, what could have been seen as the impossible back to our client and said, yes, they're open to pitching. Oh, I don't want anyone's cast offs. <laughs> and I went, they're not casting them off. They've said that they're okay. Oh no, no. I mean, it was just so like it goes to their yeah. perception of themselves. Yeah. That the choice of the agency went to the very heart of, well, if they don't want them or they're happy for them to work with us, then I don't. What was that? Um, uh, I wouldn't want to be long to a club oh, that would have me. Groucho Marx. Yes, I wouldn't want to be a member, member of a club. Yeah, I don't want an agency that my competitors <laughs> would want. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it really highlights how subjective and personal these conflict definitions can become. And I don't want to overgeneralize here. There's a lot of very enlightened no. clients out there, like the one you talked to, who said, sure, I mean, as long as there's the right... Uh, and, and we see this all the time. And we have we have a number of overlapping category clients that uh, may make, make very reasonable assessments of, of risk and, and help us manage through that. But I, I do recall, um, you know, in this conflict I alluded to off the top between a, a grocer and a bank, we had a grocer that was offering uh, a financial product, a, a credit card. We had a campaign we were doing for the for the brand that was very standardized. In other words, every execution was identical, simply produced. It didn't matter if you were selling baked beans or or you know lawn furniture. It was all presented in a, in a brand style that was very predictable. And the only thing that we were struggling to do was uh, an ad for the credit card. So we went to the to the the bank client and we said, you know, um, can we do this this ad? Because you know what the ad's going to look like. 
literally it's going to be point a camera, shoot the thing. It's going to look, it's going to be that simple. Uh, you know, if, if we don't do it, somebody else is going to do it for them. So there's nothing that's going to change in the marketplace in terms of promoting this credit card. And so all you're doing is ensuring that we will not be the ones to actually earn the revenue to do it. They're going to be forced to go find another partner to, to make this particular execution. And, you know, we even convened a meeting between these two large organizations and their senior marketing management to see if they could find a way to resolve this apparent conflict. And the, the, the client on the banks, the client on the grocery side was very keen for us to find a solution. The client on the bank side confided at the end of the discussion when they took us aside and said, I see what's in it for the grocer. I don't see what's in it for us. And I thought to myself, that's how far we've come from the definition of conflict, of conflict of interest. It's got, there's got to be something in it for you to allow the agency to do that. What about just allowing the agency to grow its business, to enhance its relationships, to be a strong partner by being able to hire more good talented people to work with you and its other clients. None of those considerations were material. The only one that mattered was, I don't see how this will benefit us. And I think that's, you know, what I would like to fight for a little bit is industry norms that get beyond that subjectivity, that allow, you know, you, you once asked me, um, you know, how do you manage this during the pitch process, right? The pitch process is probably the last place that you want to be exploring conflict because it's a defined point in time where the safest thing to do, I mean, the client that's looking for an agency wants a clean list. They don't want there to be, you know, to fall in love with a partner that they then can't work with. At the same time, can you imagine the pressure it puts on agencies to go and clear conflicts with clients? We do this all the time, and it's a debilitating part of the relationship because you kind of have to go on bended knee and say, would you be okay if we pitched this client? You don't even have the client. you got a 10% chance of winning it, yeah. and the client has to, is being asked to give you a favor. Right? Not only that, it signals to them perhaps in, you know, under the surface that maybe your, your interests have shifted to some, some shinier new object. So there is a deterioration in that trust level as well. None of this should be happening during the pitch process. There should be clear norms and guidelines for how the industry defines conflict so that all you do is go to a client afterwards and say, hey, this is an apparent conflict or a potential indirect conflict, but we're compliant with the industry norms. Here's how. And you tell them after you've won the business how compliant you are. I, I think it's a much better uh, process and a much uh, it would conceivably be a better way to Uh, to bolster client agency relationships than this business of asking permission in advance. Trinity P3. The great thing about that as well, um, Jack, is that you could actually start defining it and building it into clauses within the agreement so that Mm -hmm. everyone knows exactly what those guidelines are. You know, that that a conflict is uh, X, Y and Z. It is not A, B and C. And for absolute clarity, here is a list of direct competitors, for instance, that we would feel uncomfortable with. And here, anyone outside of that would be okay. So that mm-hmm. the agency, to your point, has absolute clarity. I just want to double back on something. You said part of the insecurity for a marketing leader is going to the CEO and explaining why the agency they've just appointed is also working for a competitor. CEOs, CFOs and COOs don't seem to have any trouble with appointing any of the big consulting firms on the basis that they've worked with multiple or work with multiple clients in the same category. What is the dynamic difference there that you think between, if you've got one, between, you know, the big consulting firms that seem to leverage their category expertise really well and agencies? 
it, it, it's it's a really interesting question. I I don't think it's just consulting firms, by the way. I think it's the entire marketing ecosystem, right? I mean, you don't have this issue with market research firms. You don't have it with um, production companies. I mean, there's there's a whole variety of, of important players in the marketing ecosystem that clients go to who have no exclusivity provisions whatsoever. You know, Ipsos, for example, or Google. Google and Facebook, you know, they go in and they have meetings um, with, you know, senior clients about insights that they've derived from all their data and how they can utilize that data to help the brand. And then they will take that those same insights and those same presentations and they will walk across the street to the competitor and offer them the same deal. And, True. you know, I've seen it. I've been in some of those meetings and they are they're you know, they, they structure their organization around category managers, you know, people who are experts in financial services who will use the exact same thinking, exact same strategic advice for all of the financial players in the market who they think that they can use that information to be able to develop programs with. They are working on a completely non-exclusive basis. Ironically, it's it's the creative partner and the, and the media uh, buying shops that are really the only ones, uh, you know, other than perhaps law firms. <laughs> I think they're the only other ones. But in the marketing ecosystem, it's really just media and creative agencies who are bound by these exclusivity provisions. Uh, the rest of the partners that, that our clients work with are, you know, building category expertise and then selling or vending that category expertise on a day-to-day basis as part of their entire business model. Yeah. Now, I think the reason for that, because that's really the question you asked, is... It, it's because they're given the latitude to do it, right? They're, the, the, take the research companies. They're using normative data gathered from all of the uh, market research that they do category by category. And they'll, they'll say, if I can, I can pre-test or post-test this creative, and I can tell you against other frozen dairy treat uh, creative that we've tested over the last 20 years, this is performing to norm above norm, below norm. That normative data gives them enormous leverage in maintaining non-exclusive relationships. Yeah. But it's only because they've been allowed to gather normative data from all of their clients and then repurpose it and share it the way that Google or Facebook will repurpose and share the consumer data. Agencies have never been given the latitude to take the category expertise that they have been that they could be developing and then repurpose it for greater advantage for a client. Because they've never been given the latitude, they don't have the latitude and or they don't have the expertise. And because they don't have the expertise, they therefore don't have any leverage with the client. Right? These other organizations, management consultancies, and so on, have manufactured leverage by saying, we now know so much about your business that you must hire us, yeah. even if we're working with other car companies or other competitors. And it's interesting you should say that auto, auto clients are always the ones that say, well, we don't want any agencies working with other auto brands, but they must, ha- must have auto experience. And you get this ridiculous game of the agencies running around checking with everyone what auto experience have you had <laughs> at a previous agency. And then the client sits there and goes, well, when did they work on that brand? And, when, and you have to say at a previous job, you know, because this agency hasn't had auto for more than 10 years. Yeah, it, it's, it's, just uh, a, it's a ridiculous, wasteful game. Well, again, it's because there are no norms and standards, right? There is no legal definition of what an agency conflict of interest might be. And therefore, uh, because it's arbitrary, because it's subjective, then you get into these situations where we're all running around in circles trying to gamify, if you will, how we're going to structure things. That's where where the Holdco, the holding company model emerged from. It's probably the most successful uh, conflict management device ever created in advertising, 
because if you go and look at the, the literature on agency client conflict, nothing new has been written about it in 20 years yeah. because since the hold co's kind of emerged as the solution and clients felt their risk was sufficiently mitigated by Omnicom and WPP and the others creating conflict agencies so that they could all have their own car brand, the clients feel the problem's been put to rest. Well, there's naive, a joke. There but... was a joke at the time that uh, Sir Martin uh, had all of the media agencies start with M, so the client would have trouble differentiating which one they were actually <laughs> with. They've since changed that. Wave makers broken, but all they've done is turned the M up the other way. <laughs> um, I when I started my business because I'd worked in advertising for 15 years, and one of my uh, early clients was in confectionery, and we'd put a proposal together to. Uh, to work through on a particular problem. And they said, well, of course, this will be exclusive. And I immediately said, well, how many um, competitors do you have? And he, the CMO went, oh, nine. And I said, well, just multiply that by nine because that's the uh, <laughs> income that you'd be taking away from me. And uh, he said, all right, fair enough. I think, do you think maybe if agencies just made a stand on this and, and had more conversations around what does represent a conflict of interest? Or do you think the balance of power is too much in the favour of the client that the agencies are unable to raise this as a topic? So in terms of where this could be resolved, I, I've talked a couple of times about establishing legal definitions or norms that agencies could be compliant with. That is something that it's very difficult for individual agencies to, uh, to pioneer. It really needs to be done at the trade association level. And I think it actually begins with a legal principle called restraint of trade. Uh, you know, if you, if, you, if you dig into what restraint of trade means, you find it very often used in, in context of non-competes, non-solicitation, and so on. But it, it's actually quite interesting that, that exclusivity as a concept is in itself a form of restraint of trade. Um, I actually read about this in an in a, uh, Australian publication, uh, of all places, I think it was called Human Resources uh, something or other. I'm <laughs> forgetting the name of the publication. But they published a whole piece on um, the notion that, that you know, uh, contracts that provide exclusivity or demand exclusivity by, from a contracting partner have to not exceed reasonable limits. And that, you know, the goal is unfettered trade. In other words, the ability to go out and work with whoever you want, as long as the, 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 the limits are reasonable on that, then the exclusivity provision can prevail. But as soon as the exclusivity provision is more binding than is reasonable, then, in fact, the, con the legal concept of restraint and trade is a tool with which you can break a contract. It actually supersedes the client agency service agreement. The problem is individual agencies are not going to go to court to resolve this issue with their clients. They don't want to lose their client. It's an issue that really should be resolved through trade associations. That's what trade associations are, you know, are, are intended to do is take collective action on issues of collective interest where individual agencies couldn't either afford to financially or couldn't afford to in terms of reputation or, or risk or whatever it happened to be. The problem here, and this is the part I haven't been able to, 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 to sort of resolve in my own mind, is this is the one issue that I think trade associations are ill-equipped to represent their members on because there is this really strange quirk of logic in the conflict um, conflict definition, which is by maintaining sort of vague, arbitrary definitions of conflict, the world needs more ad agencies. And if you were to actually create norms and standards that said, these are conflicts, these are not, you will find that it will stimulate the growth 
and the consolidation in our industry to a point where the maximum amount of consolidation as prescribed by these norms and rules that we could theoretically all abide by, we need far fewer agencies. And so the membership of an industry, an agency industry association would find it hard, I think, to get widespread support for the idea of tightening up conflict definition and making it a lot more restrictive for clients to use, because that would actually work against the interests of many of their members who might not have clients otherwise. So it is, it's a bit of a, a wicked problem that way, I think. It's really interesting you say that because uh, back in 2019, we introduced a process for clients that were going to market only because they had some sort of obligation to do so, not because you know, there was need to change agencies. We introduced a commercial review and we thought the agencies would love this. That you know, rather than having all these tenders, that uh, they could, a client could renew the contract with their incumbent without going to market. I got as many agencies going, but you're taking away opportunities for new business. And I go, you're only saying that because you're not the incumbent. If you were the incumbent, you'd be very happy with this. It's it's trying to have your cake and eat it too. I think it, it absolutely is. But I I, I think and you- there's a conflict of interest. <laughs> there is a conflict of interest, but I, I, I do think that some of this, what I would consider nonsensical conflict definition, should be resolvable somehow. You know, I, I, I think back to, um, you know, mass merchandisers, grocers, people like that, who will say that their agency can't work for a national brand, right? If they're, if they're selling private label brands on behalf of the grocer, they can't be working for a national brand in the same category. But the reality is the grocer themselves is selling both brands. So what they're really saying is we are entitled to profit from both brands. We just don't want you promoting the one that has a lower margin for us. <laughs> and I think that kind of you know, logic to me is so far removed from direct conflict, zero-sum conflict, yeah. Coke versus Pepsi, that surely as an industry, we have to find a way to establish some rudimentary standards that don't go so far as to you know, hurt the interests of all agencies and and consolidate everything into you know three big holding companies or whatever, but just bring some common sense to the process so that it's not so arbitrary. And look, if you manage to succeed, Jack, let me know because we will absolutely <laughs> be on board with uh, supporting that. I have to say, you know, and the reason I write about the the conflict over time is because it's one of those quirks of the industry that uh, raises my uh, curiosity as to why it still exists. I think to your point, you know, if we can get some guidelines, some framework around what is true conflict of interest and what's just a neat thing to, an easy thing to do, I think uh, we'd absolutely improve the industry. I agree. Thank you for your time. It's been a terrific uh, conversation. Unfortunately, uh, we've run out of it, but uh, uh, please, I'd, I'd love to uh, circle back with you at some time in the future and uh, and continue this conversation. Anytime, Darren. It's been my pleasure. What um, Just before we go, what client or category would, if there was no conflict, would you really like to have in your uh, roster of, uh, of clients? Mm-hmm.